to be remade, to have a movie of mine remade is very flattering. And some of these remakes, I get to collect a check, which is even nicer. Radio Snuff Porn, Mummified Cyclists and The Messiah in the House of Lords, all on this 35th Midnight video with your host me, Phil Walsh. And me, Jim Hall. Tonight, John Gielgud's brother and a murder of bitchy thesps are all under suspicion when on-air foul play results in death at Broadcasting House. Our listeners vote John Carpenter Champion sees Sam Neill having trouble separating fact from fiction as he finds himself in the mouth of madness. And the British aristocracy gets a severe jolt when fruitcake Earl Peter O'Toole announces he's the second coming in savage satire, the ruling class. Looking about on the internet this week, there seems to be quite a few people who are suddenly awfully keen to get a definition of the term mewling quim. <laughs> yeah. Do you know why? Yes, I know why. I saw that film as well. Okay. Because, <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's blockbuster, summer blockbuster season, 2012, and kicking off with early, the Avengers. Uh, you get a good one straight in there, but yeah, yeah we're in, yeah. we're into May now. So, yeah, the Avengers, or as it's known here, Marvel Avengers Assemble. Uh, we've been to see it separately, and we've deliberately not spoken to each other about it. You've got a cheeky grin on your face as you lower <laughs> your pint glass of Guinness. What did you make of it? I really liked it. Mm -hmm. I enjoyed it. Um, I thought it was a great big walloping action romp. But I did have issues with it. Uh, I thought two hours, 20 minutes was way too long. They could have cut down 40 minutes. <laughs> Don't you want your uh, 15 quid's worth or whatever it is yeah. at cinemas nowadays? It was seven quid at the uh, view, actually. Yeah, I paid a five for a peck and place. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't think I like Josh Whedon's writing. I find... Because um, I, I saw Cabin in the Woods recently as well. I've never seen Buffy, and I don't know much of his TV work. I've seen Alien Resurrection. But the endless quippery coming out of all these mouths. Not quimmery. <laughs> Uh, I just found it grating by the end of it. I, I thought it like actually removed the characters who'd been built up in a certain way in the other films. It made them quite different from the characters I was expecting. Mm. Although they were still, you know, Stark was Stark, and you know you expect that from him. But it just, it was like you could hear a writer's voice all the time, which I found a little bit. Mm. It, it became a pain. No, I really enjoyed it. To begin with, I thought this is going to be a load of nonsense. Uh, what do you expect? But no, by the time it got going, I was really enjoying it. And I've got to admit, as a comics fan, although, although I'm not a huge like Marvel fanboy, no. there was still a little bit of a fanboy tingle just seeing the Hulk and Thor going toe-to-toe. -to -toe. Yeah, yeah. And the weird thing is now, I mean, you know there's that thing when you're into something and it's your little hobby, and mm. you hate it when it goes mainstream? Mm. With this, it was kind of the reverse. Watching it with a packed audience, which is quite rare for me. Yeah. Watching it with a packed audience in a cinema on a Sunday, and obviously a lot of them kids, sitting there thinking, yeah, they get all these characters, don't they? You know, mm. They know who Iron Man is in a way that I, five or six years ago, I didn't think anyone would ever, the public would ever cotton on to him. No. It just didn't seem like a one of those iconic heroes in the way that Spider-Man is or something. 
But no, I'll go as far as to say, given I don't generally like superhero comic book adaptations, this is probably as good a job as they could have done with it, I mm. think. I mean, yeah, I think it really worked. Everyone, all the characters had their own chance to shine. Yeah, um, yeah. Even Hawkeye mm. uh, is good, good. Um, the only weird thing for me was, because I kind of liked the quippery. I don't, I can, I see your point, but I yeah. think it was quite good to have that rather than just people punching each other through walls. They kind yeah, of yeah. saved all, it was all build up and then that was all in the last half hour or so the weird thing watching it is even though the characters it's usually all their secret identities so Tony Stark uh, Steve Rogers Captain America Bruce Banner the Hulk seeing them even though for the film they've been massively simplified and exaggerated as personalities we all know people like that <laughs> the arrogant guy the guy who's kind of lost in his own world of science or whatever or someone who's just a complete idealist and doesn't seem to have a personality mm. and then you're left with Thor <laughs> <laughs> he's never going to work is he I know a guy like Thor really yeah <laughs> I really do honestly what personality wise uh, yeah this isn't looks. your boss Bjorn is it no it's a, it's an old friend of his actually it's ah. called, uh, so I he's from the land of the Vikings he's from, anyway. he's from Poland but All uh, right. he is very much uh, uh, he is like Thor personified <laughs> gosh <laughs> um Scarlett Johansson beating up Herzy Skolimowski mm-hmm. <laughs> that was pretty good <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah I thought it was quite funny because we'd done the show we'd recorded the show and I think we hadn't released it by that point and mm-hmm. I because I, I, I'd seen I recognised him from Eastern Promises yeah. well I think Mondo Dan had to tell me it was him in Eastern Promises yeah. I was like wow this is amazing it's uh, serendipitous but yeah no I really like the fact that she was actually I was going to say fleshed out. <laughs> oh, yeah. But she was given like a bit more of a central role. And it was interesting to have someone who wasn't just like crammed full of testosterone. And, you know, <laughs> she might have been. I'm not saying it. anything. <laughs> Any case, that's five minutes on that. That's summer blockbuster season 2012 kicked off. <laughs> Let's finished. go back to something creek. you got more to come. No, finished. finished. Well, that, fin- that's it. That's it for Midnight Video. <laughs> We're rewinding the tape. So, let's go back to something creaky and crackly from about 80 years ago. Can we have that last sentence again, Mr. Parsons? Do remember you're being strangled. You're not apologising for revoking at cards. When an actor's strangled cries during a radio murder mystery drama don't cut the mustard for his producer, a level of method authenticity that even Stanislavski would think twice about is incorporated during the finished production for 1934's Death at Broadcasting House. A quaint, well-mannered thriller offering audiences then and now a fascinating glimpse into the nuts and bolts of the BBC. Not the oldest film that we've reviewed so far. I think no. Phantom Carriage mm, yeah. has, uh, has that uh, top spot. Yeah, I read about this in the Time Out um, film guide from last year's one, I think. Um, as you do, I was just flicking through it one, one day, one afternoon, and it just intrigued me. It, it was a fairly positive review. Um, but I like the idea of something being set in Broadcasting House because anyone who's lived in the UK, you know, the BBC is is an institution and um, something that everyone knows. But there's what I found interesting was this period where it was still very much like radio orientated, and the idea of setting a murder mystery there was like I 
thought, wow, what a great idea. And yeah, managed to track it down, hunt it down. And fortunately, it can be all found on YouTube. Jim Well, this, this <laughs> did make me chuckle because we were going to review this on the last show and at the last minute we couldn't get hold of a copy and uh, we had to substitute it for The Shout instead. Good movie. Mm. Um, but when, because we, we do the the forecast for people who want to know what we're doing up front and Giles uh, Edwards, was it, got in yeah. touch and when he heard Death at Broadcasting, I said, wow, where did you get a copy of that? I've been looking for years. And indeed, it's all been up on YouTube in one chunk <laughs> since last October, I think. So, uh, God bless you, YouTube. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, I managed to get it from Cinema Garden, so mm-hmm. for people in the know with that. Um, but yeah, it's um, it's out there, so <laughs> it's like the X Files. <laughs> so yeah, I, I, yeah, as per usual, I'd not heard of this, but um, no, I did enjoy this. It's kind of it was telling you said it's not the oldest thing we've done because we have done a few silent movies. Uh, Phantom Carriage and Safety Last, which we both really loved. The um, something that struck me watching this is, I think many people have said it's almost a shame that sound came into films because by the end, certainly at its best, you know, um, filmmakers in the silent era had almost developed a grammar and a language so that they didn't have to use, you know, to, to have had dialogue or anything would have been completely superfluous. They completely knew how to tell a story and get mm. this across and. I think someone rather grandly, actually, I, can't, I think it was an actor, but uh, it was on an old documentary and said, you know, it's such a shame there's always like, a universal language had appeared that is international and everyone understood it and then sound came in and ruined it. And um, it's a bit pompous, but you, can, you watch something like this, which I did enjoy, but there's a sense of this that it is struggling to, it's, it's such early days for filmmaking and it's struggling to incorporate something that's more like a stage play, mm. which is completely dependent on, on dialogue. Um, and so the filmmaking in this does sort of be, seem to be taking a backward step. It's very choppy editing, the way things are framed. Obviously, it is quite a low-budget film. This isn't yeah. like uh, a Cecil B. DeMille production or anything. Far from it, no, yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, not many sets are used, and there's no exteriors at all. And But yeah, that being said, though, I I did find it fast. Like, I mean, you, it's already mentioned in the introduction, but it really is... Like an absolutely fascinating sort of look into how the BBC worked, how actually those productions, those radio shows that had 25 million viewers, um, viewers, <laughs> listeners. We like, get it mixed up ourselves. Yeah, which is extraordinary. I mean, it's amazing. You know, there'd be people sat around. Well, yeah, the, what else the, was the there radio, to do? You know? you know, it's, um, but no, that's, that's something that's really great about it because, you know, obviously we're going to. We'll say this because we're doing a podcast, but it is <laughs> it is weird how there's a lot of people who really don't nowadays just have no interest in audio or spoken word. Whereas I still really love it and much prefer it to TV a lot of the time, mm-hmm. certainly for documentaries and things. So it was there was something really nice about watching this, and yeah, having that there's, there is that quote on it because the murder happens on air, and I think they say 25 million people heard it happening live. And you think, God Almighty, yeah. you know, <laughs> forget the voice or anything on TV, you know the. Simon Cowell shows or anything this is an incredible audience isn't it but because of the time it was made yeah an awful lot of it is given over to explain to the audience how these shows are made and you have um, Val Gilgood who actually wrote the book it's based on as well he's starring as a, a producer in this and Farquharson is the he's <laughs> incredible yes. <laughs> um, and he's going to great pains to tell us that the actors are all in separate studios and the actors themselves are saying this as well because they're all very um waspish aren't they and mm. don't want anything to do with each other um, 
and indeed, as it as it goes on, it's quite high tech for its day, isn't it? It's almost like watching an old Mission Impossible when they have to explain what a lot of the equipment does. Yeah, yeah. Because a lot of it revolves around the Blatner phone, which I did look up on the internet. And apparently, it's just like a massive reel-to-reel recorder. But I was reading a review of it and said, given this is such a big feature of the the film. We never see it. You don't see it, yeah. Yeah, and I think it would have either been too big to have as a prop or possibly the BBC owned one and weren't going to let them use it. <laughs> but, um, yeah, no, it's, it's a real fascinating old piece, isn't it? I mean, I, and like I say, I did really enjoy it, even though I don't generally like whodunits. So I've got to say they're probably one of my least favourite types yeah. of story. Yeah, I mean, there is like there is that conceit about um, not giving the audience enough information to ever get it, which I've always like been really annoyed about by like Agatha Christie films or novels, or I mean, even Sherlock Holmes to some extent. You, there's always this the information is being withheld, and then it's a bit like oh well, yeah. you know. And also for it to work, every every one of the suspects has to be equally suspect looking. Mm. You know, they all have to have a motive and the opportunity. And so in the end, it's like, well, it could have been any of them, couldn't it? Yeah. The fact that it happened to be Mr. X rather than any of the others seems a bit redundant. Also, mm. it means you're only ever going to watch it once. That's true. Because yeah. once the mystery's solved, that's the entire thing. Like the usual suspects. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, with this, even though we're not going to reveal who the murderer is, um, yeah, there's st- still so much to enjoy as it's going along and, you know, the actual telling of the story. What was also interesting, it's kind of works against itself, because this is such an old film, the fact that it has the usual stuff like there's someone who the film seems to be setting up very much as this person is the murderer. Yeah. If I will say it. It's um, Val Gilgood himself as the producer. There's so many scenes where um, at the beginning he's going absolutely around the bend with the actor who finally gets killed. Uh, who's practicing his death scene? Oh, is that Val Gilgood? Val Gilgood the is the producer. Curd. Card, Curd, is it? Julian Card, Curd. The producer <laughs> with a little beard. With a, he yes. looks like a Tintin character. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. right, I didn't realize. I thought he was. An anorexic Trotsky. <laughs> I thought he was the um, like the the commissioner or whatever, you know, no, the, the head no. head guy. All oh, um, right, but he's getting he's tearing his hair out and going, oh, when I, when when the audience listen to this man being strangled, I want them to actually be able to see the killer's hands as the cameras cut to his own hands air strangling. Yeah, <laughs> and um, hey, maybe he does turn out to be the murderer. We're not saying, but this is the thing because at that early stage in filmmaking, you're not sure if that was just the filmmakers thinking we better put some hints in. Mm. Nowadays, you'd watch that and think, "Oh, it's too obvious that they're hinting it's this person." But at this point, you were you were guessing all the way through it. Yeah, no, it did, did actually do quite a good job of um, uh, giving you red herrings. Yeah, I thought, um, like you say, because of that time, I suppose not many films have been produced of this. Yeah, the cliches weren't time. there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I suppose it was still stage play still, but um, no. for, for, this is it. The film was still such a new thing. It's mm. it's hard to tell when these things started. And there's there's actually quite a lot of um, yeah I'd say rich characters that are uh, in the film as well. You, there's a lot of stereotypes or what we'd call archetypes nowadays, I guess. But the the standout for me was um, oh, what's his name? Is the drunken Peter Bannister. Guy. Oh, Sorry, yeah. Guy Bannister, played Guy by Bannister. Peter Haddon. I'm glad you mentioned him because um, he's like Bertie Wooster. Well, <laughs> well, he did play. Um, he did. He was in a, a PG Woodhouse adaptation wow. earlier on, which I've <laughs> forgotten to write the title of, but it's like. Cluttering with Cuthbert or something. <laughs> he's, he's got the lead role. Um, but no, amongst all of this murder and mystery, they do. There are several bits of like relief, and one of them is this constant character, Guy Bannister, who's like a friend of one of the um, producers there. That's right. Yeah. 
who is, like you say, drunk, although that's that was my assumption when he first turned up, because he does seem so over the top. But he's like that throughout the film, <laughs> and I think he's just playing a complete upper-class twit, isn't yeah, it? But yeah. he blurs the line between if he's just his brain is so addled from inbreeding <laughs> and whatever. Because he turns up, he's kind of like a proto-Terry Thomas, isn't he? That, yeah, yeah, actually. Yeah. He doesn't really not know what's going on. Isn't <laughs> that doesn't do him justice. <laughs> but he immediately emerged as level-pegging with Chris Rock in The Fifth Element, of uh, one of cinema's most punchable characters. I, Chris uh, Tucker. Chris Tucker, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But man, just every time he's on screen, you're like squirming. And he's oh. not meant to provoke that response. You're, he's probably meant to be quite a lovable character, but you just... Oh. Oh wow, no! I, I really liked him. I, I oh no! I didn't have that at all. I was I was definitely of the the sort of like oh, he was endearing. He was tickling to me. you. Yeah, absolutely. He thought he was an time. absolute card. <laughs> he, was, he cracked me up no end. Like. Well, it's the fact throughout it because he does... just seems so odd. Like there's like an odd scene as well where a French guy because he's already been asked for an autograph. Yeah, everyone, there's autograph hunters outside um, Bush House. And he's there, been right? asked by these guys, uh, these like I don't know, the women or young girls or something, and they think he's someone famous, but he isn't. And then he goes in, and then he comes back out, and he's randomly asked by this like French autograph. Oh hunter, yeah, and he's like, uh, "Have you been on the air?" <laughs> 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 Your wife must love that impression. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it just doesn't really fit in at all with well, the rest of the story. My favourite bit from him was when the whole plot was going, this act has been found dead, everyone who was in the building is under suspicion, and um, he's oblivious to this, but then mm. one of the producers comes and says to him, you know, the police, you know, you're, you're a suspect. I think he actually exaggerates it, doesn't he? Yeah. And he seems to take this on board awfully quickly, and... Um, looks crestfallen and then says um, you, you can't go off and leave a pal in the shadow of the gallows without, <laughs> so to speak <laughs> and throughout it he's just trying to find this uh, girl he met while he was because the, the gag with him is he's going up and down the stairs all the time and he never gets to go and see the show he's after And um, Betty Davis Betty Davis who just calls well, his alibi yeah yes I've got a lovely little alibi <laughs> but uh, yes he's dominating the, uh, the review already um <laughs> No, lots of other stuff I liked about this. Did you like the sort of weird bit of the music at the beginning? It has the kind of RKO telegraph beeps merged yeah. in with the main theme. Yeah, that was good. And also there's... Well, there's they several... have these amazing dance numbers that mm. are going on. So they've got like a live performance. But they're all dressed up. That's the thing, actually. Everyone is dressed up all the time. People are in... Uh, like penguin suits. I well, mean, that was that's how things were at the yeah, BBC. The announcers amazing. had to wear full evening dress, even though they were sitting at microphones. But that's the, yeah. There's a big variety show going on there, mm. and yeah, because that's what Bannister's gone to watch. Yeah, he wants he? the variety. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but yeah, even though it's on the radio, it is like a full variety show with uh, glamorous girls dancing, and um, throughout it, lots of musical interludes, mm. um, a few songs, and from genuine radio stars of the day who are kind of sadly forgotten now. One, Elizabeth Welsh, the, the black girl. The black girl, yeah. Who was singing Lazy Lady and just did this again, given it's on the radio. Obviously, this is a film of it, but um, yeah, she was a genuine famous singer mm. of the day. Her performance of this song, Lazy Lady, is extraordinary, it isn't is it? She's amazing. Just, she seems to be pulling these weird voodoo zombie kind of poses at some point, I, gurning. I really, really thought it's the kind of thing you'd see in a David Lynch film. Yes. I can imagine Bad Lamenti doing the music for it and having this performer doing something like quite odd and removed but yeah it was yeah it was stunning and also there's there's a great bit so you have quite a few moments of uh, like cuts to presenters doing the end of shows or whatever and there's there's a guy who goes 
good night everybody and then he just sparks up a fag although yeah before that there's a bit I don't know if it's a news presenter or if it's just some weird diatribe they've got going on but there's a guy going on about the French no it's the germ it's the, the Germans complaining about the French one of the putting two. them down and that, that's yeah, that's having yeah. to rise up sort of. which given this is 1934 <laughs> yeah, yeah. but um, again with that idea that you're not sure if this is so old you don't know what the cliches are I did there was a lot of um, really good jokes in there um, given it's such an old film and I really like the one which actually Woody Allen kind of did many years later in Radio Days which um, I haven't seen no you haven't seen but uh, <laughs> in that it's the youthful Woody Allen figures remembering listening to radio and I think one figure he particularly loves is kind of like uh, Orson Welles is the shadow I think it's a vigilante character called the Masked Avenger I might mm-hmm. be wrong but the gag is we're listening to it it's got this great voice and then when you actually see the guy playing him on the radio it's um is it Wallace Shawn or Sean Wallace? I'm never sure which way around it is. The little bald guy from My Dinner with Andre. Oh, right, yeah. Uh, and he's in Princess Bride. Yes. Yeah, I can't remember. But yeah, the, the, the gap between that. But here there's a similar joke when there's one of the actors playing the lover in this um, drama. And it's this gaunt old bloke, isn't it? <laughs> yes. But he's got yes. this really frothy, chocolatey voice. When yeah, he's speaking, he's, he's mellifluous, isn't he? Yes. <laughs> But no, I thought that set up with all the actors being uh, making quips about how they, they, they're lowering themselves to do broadcast. It's as bad as films. Yes. So it's, clear that it's, it's the stage or nothing, you know. <laughs> so yeah, like I say, I don't. the whodunit element doesn't really matter, but we're not going to reveal who it is. Um, but yeah, there's, there's so much to enjoy about this. I'm, I'm glad I've seen it. It was a serendipitous find, I think, because otherwise I'd, I'd probably never have heard of it. But... Um, yeah, anyone hunting, trying to hunt down some old, old films of your, then this is definitely one they should add to the list. I think. I don't know if, because um, Jack Hawkins, the actor, was in there. Mm-hmm. Did he go on to become a producer? Do you I know? think so. Yeah, there's a few. He like... Produced the ruling class, actually. Oh right, that's a nice. Thing. I didn't know. I didn't mm. double check that, but yeah, um, yeah, because I wasn't. That's the thing with films of this era um certainly in britain anyway i mean i, d- I didn't really know that many people involved obviously there's like val gilgood but i wouldn't mm-hmm. have made that link straight away well yeah something to say with val gilgood uh, and a film of this vintage is it looks like it's going to be a prime example for people to do lazy jokes about how people talk in that um <laughs> yeah received pronunciation or bbc english as it was known then even though that's there, it would be a cheap dig to say that. However, Val Gilgood is so extraordinary in it, isn't he? Because <laughs> yeah. he's incredibly just stiff and saying, what the deuce is this? Yes, and giving him the dialogue. You know? <laughs> but uh, it's worth watching just for him. Because yeah. all the other people it work in the 1934-ness of it, but mm. he just seems like something else entirely. His whole body language... Uh, when he's galloping downstairs and things. But yeah, and, um, I think when they're playing back the um, the tape... Stop it! Stop it! I can't stand it. <laughs> it's, uh, I would imagine if like Harold Lloyd was to do a parody, he'd be something along his lines. Oh know? yeah, he's very much someone <laughs> that Harry Enfield would do as yeah. a, as an endlessly recurring character. <laughs> There's no point in keeping him, I suppose. No, I look him up in the morning. His memory may have improved by then. Well, his behaviour is due to the fact that he's feeling seedy. Well, of course, he's an actor. Yes, that's a nasty complication to any illness, isn't it? Yeah. So last time um, we had. John Carpenter, who's, who's coming this way, who's coming this way out of hospital, eagerly <laughs> awaiting, <laughs> eagerly awaiting our review of his 1994 classic in the mouth of madness. Dun, dun, tr- 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 and then over in, is he still in Switzerland, Roman? 
Isn't that where he got arrested? Well, he ain't in America. So, yeah, Mr. Roman Polanski. Yes, uh, listeners vote. Thanks to everyone who entered. And, um, yeah, I've got to say, that loads and loads of different votes. Obviously, the few clear favourites emerged, but mm-hmm. I think loads and loads of different little things got one-off votes, which shows how uh, diverse his filmography is. And which is great. You know, that's partially the reason why... I certainly wanted to do Polanski was I haven't seen enough of his films and I thought that's a good way of sort of finding out more about them what what floats people's boats we know what floats uh, Polanski's boat yeah but yeah (laughs) Uh, but I was surprised that uh, what's it called Uh, (laughs) Knife in the Water and Cold Yeah. Um, didn't even get a mention because I did buy a box set with them in recently. Last break <laughs> from the listeners. <laughs> I just thought, yeah, it'd be great if they all voted for something that I already own. No time for pleasance. <laughs> in fact, that yeah, um, Polanski this week, Carmen to last. That could have been a double bill of pleasance if we played our cards right. Oh, Halloween and all sorts of other stuff. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, kicking off proceedings, Joe Scaramanga, hi mate, I'd like you to do The Tenant, just because I always fall asleep whenever I've tried to watch it, though I know how it ends. <laughs> That's what we're here for. Something I've owned for ages and still not watched. Oh, is, does this have this effect on lots of people? <laughs> no, uh, it's this thing that's just in your periphery version all the time. No, I didn't. I'm sure the Mondo guys did The Tenant. Well, I think they have. Yeah. I think I maybe it's good if you watch films yourself though. yeah don't take I, I like it, it. Vica- I like it vicariously it. <laughs> um, Marie Hepworth after much consideration Repulsion yep that's going to be a popular one Stephen Mitchell Chinatown possibly the greatest movie ever made in my opinion but fuck it I'd rather hear your bitter moon chat which is quite funny because Stephen put that on Twitter and then he joined our Facebook group and said, do Rosemary's Baby. So he wants a three-way. Very, very Polanski. I'm not going to say anything. Charles Edwards. Oh, Bitter Moon gets a vote from me. Never talked about deeply eccentric fun. I like it. Oh, Bitter Moon. (laughs) Ooh. (laughs) Neil Mitchell, Repulsion. Bitter Moon is one of his awful ones. Ooh. Bitter Moon's getting kicked backwards and forwards. Max Wren, my vote goes to his Hammer parody, Dance of the Vampires, a.k.a. the Fearless Vampire Killers. Marnie Shaw, hi Marnie, Chinatown, surely, if only for the comedy plaster on Nicholson's nose and the Dunaway slapping denouement. Um, <laughs> I might have said this on their first show, but when Chinatown was first shown on ITV, I didn't see it, I was too young, but um, apparently edits in films for sort of saucy, uh, frantic material... Mm so rife that apparently um, he just had no plaster on his nose in one scene and then had one the next the whole scene when his nostrils get slashed open yeah. was just cut out it was gone yeah <laughs> it's not even that bad nah this was you know ITV it must have been ITV oh yeah, yeah terrible for that Phil McGee hey Phil Chinatown just to be rotten as you have to explain the slight plot <laughs> uh. Anthony Nesbitt, my Polanski nomination. Bitter Moon, granted, not exactly one of Uncle Ernie's best films. A little Who reference there, <laughs> yet strangely compulsive, complete with a powerhouse performance by the always reliable Peter Coyote, as well as a fantastic score by Van Vangelis, I believe it's pronounced now, isn't it? 
I always call it Vangelis, but I always thought it was Vangelis. But we can go either way. I heard he was like, oh, we'll talk about him in a second. <laughs> Don't want to get away from Anthony's uh, contribution. A classic example of a director making a film about his obsessions but not making any sense of them. Um, no, I heard recently Van Vangelis or Vangelis, how it's pronounced, was going to take over from Rick Wakeman in Yes in the seventies. Wow. But then couldn't because after he came through um, the customs, he couldn't get any of his keyboards to work because of the European plugs. <laughs> no way. Absolutely. Surely they've had some kind of adapters. Then. No, he ran foul. Patrick <laughs> Patrick Morass was in there after that. <laughs> That's insane. Oh, I like I like a bit of van Vang. Bang. <laughs> <laughs> um, Edward Bachman. My Polanski nomination is The Ninth Gate. Definitely not one of his better films and critically panned, but every time it comes on TV I find myself inexplicably watching the whole thing. Maybe it's Depp's low-key performance. We were at the pictures a few weeks back to watch The Divide. Let's not dwell on that at all. But they had the um, trailer for, um, what is it called, Dark Shadows? Oh, God. Talking of Depp. Yes. Man, that got the night off to a good start. (laughs) Yeah, it was downhill into the basement from there. Bloody hell. Eric Nystrom, I put my vote on Bitter Moon. Hated it when I saw it, but I think it would fit nicely into your show and I'd love to hear your views on it. Um, Sasha Eicholtz, I really, really would love you to do What Kate, which is a film I caught on German TV in the mid-80s. I developed a serious crush on Sydney Rome afterwards. And then Jim has <laughs> he's censored tr- this. Not censored, just truncated in the interests <laughs> of... Yeah, I, I wasn't sure if Sasha wanted me to read out... <laughs> I read the, the same email and yeah. like, yeah, yeah, Sasha, he, this was something that really uh, touched him when he was a young, younger guy, so I need to check it out as well. I think Dave, I heard uh, on the Dave side Wall, of Wall said he wanted to do, he wanted us to do what? Oh, okay. It got so a bit of a, a, a burst of excitement for that, mm. because uh, our, last, our last vote, Rich Wells, hi hey, mate, I'm going to go willfully obscure and vote for 1972's What?, I only came across it recently and didn't think much of it, but it's very midnight video. I love it when people want <laughs> yeah. us to review stuff they don't like. Yeah. And I'd be curious to hear your thoughts. It's like Alice in Wonderland reimagined as a 70s Euro sex comedy. That said, I hope Cul-de-sac wins. Well, Thanks to everybody. What, what has won, though? Well, I think a clear leader emerged there. Although, as we always say, this isn't everybody who voted. It's kind of people who yeah. wrote a few words on why they've chosen... Uh, their Polanski pal, their Polanski favourite. <laughs> People who said a few words on why they chose their particular Polanski fave. Their premier Polanski. Indeed. So, Phil, in reverse order, at number three. What? What? And Repulsion. Joint uh, third place there. Number two. Snipping of the nose. <laughs> a bit of a, how's your father? <laughs> <laughs> in Chinatown. <laughs> And romping home at number one. Bitter Moon. Bitter Moon, which you say you've Not to be confused with Button Moon. (laughs) Actually. (laughs) Which is is wooden spoons, isn't it? Mr. Spoon. Well, it's one of those things that... um, Yeah, it was a children's TV show from the early 80s. But I think I got a bit alarmed because his his arms... It's a a man-made from kitchen utensils. But I'm alarmed that his arms are kind of wooden spoons but his rocket's made from a clearly a Heinz baked bean tin and I was always worried, I was concerned about how the two work together <laughs> like scale size it must have been an enormous can of beans it 
It was probably the same size can as um, Roger Dolce using that picture uh, oh, when he um, filled his bath. Who sells out? <laughs> so yes, on the next show, Bitter Moon, not Button Moon. Yeah. And we need our next director's vote. Who it going to be? Who it going to be? I don't know. Who is it? <laughs> Who is it going to be? It's your is one, it, isn't it? Is it mine? Yeah. It's going to be one of my choices. Um, I'm going Asian. You're turning Japanese. Yeah, uh, I really think so. Although this fellow isn't <laughs> Japanese. He already know. is. He already is. Um, yeah, I is was he thinking. Japanese? Yeah, he is Japanese. Oh, yeah, sorry. Um, my ignorance got even ignoranter. <laughs> I was thinking Kurosawa because, you know, he's got the chops. But for me personally, my favourite Japanese director has to be uh, Takeshi Kitano, aka Beat Takeshi. Um, a lot of people might know him from if you watch. I don't know if it's Challenge TV or Watch Channel where he does Takeshi's Castle, you know, these what? mad kind of endurance games. Oh man. I've he orchestrated those in the sort of like late 80s, uh, maybe the 90s. But he has made lots of very interesting, varied films, but in his own inimitable, um, idiosyncratic style. So I'd really love to hear the variety of uh, votes for this one. So okay. get him in for Takeshi Kisano. Yep, we'll give you a little prompt on Twitter and Facebook, but uh, yeah, get those votes coming in. That lunatic with the axe, that was Kane's agent? Hard to believe, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, well, you'd think a guy that outsells Stephen King could find better representation. H.P. Lovecraft's Cthulhu mythos has for decades exerted a grim fascination over countless fevered imaginations, with its glimpses of crawling dread from beyond time. Who better to investigate such cosmic horror than insurance scam buster Sam Neill in John Carpenter's 1994 metafictional opus In the Mouth of Madness, in which publisher Charlton Heston is desperate to find out where the world's most successful author has vanished to and hires Neill to unearth the baffling answers. Winner of a John Carpenter listener's vote, which I'm very pleased about because... Um <laughs> there's a whole, well, there's a whole sweat. Uh, even though I used to really enjoy watching Carpenter's films when I was younger, I did say last time there's the stuff from Prince of Darkness onwards gets pretty patchy for me. I am going to try and catch up with him, but this I had heard from various people is um, one of his better ones from uh, from from the Lost Years. <laughs> and yeah, I was really pleased to sit down and watch this because as soon as the film starts, it's got a pretty typical. It's not as catchy as his classic ones, but a typical John Carpenter score at the beginning, quite basic and repetitive, but rather than being all done on a synth it's with this kind of chugging metal riff that never quite gets out of first gear <laughs> which just really sets the tone for things and especially because this is like 95 it came out that's probably when Beavers and Butthead were at the peak of their popularity <laughs> and like I say it sets the tone because I, I was immediately drawn back to those Carpenter films I used to watch and that sense of him being someone who with a few notable exceptions, you're not really sure if he's doing his films tongue-in-cheek or whether he genuinely thinks he's doing good horror films and just fumbles the potato a little bit. Um, yeah, got off to a great start. Having said that, is it tongue-in-cheek or not? The opening, I'm not sure if Carpenter's meant it to be a little bit humorous, but certainly everyone involved is playing it for laughs. Mm. Including, I mean, that's great. Over this chugging heavy metal riff, you've then got this, the name Sam Neill appears. <laughs> and uh, the two don't quite tally. But here's what one of the first things you see in it. The opening scene is in this... Um, well, the first person you see is uh, Clamp from Gremlins 2. <laughs> <laughs> so it already won you over. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, 
I'll just say that I really love this anyway. Yeah. Yeah, I've liked it for a long time. So. Oh, you've already seen it? Oh, I've seen it a few times. Right, yeah, yeah. right. I, even though, like I was telling you before, I always get confused for some reason with Lord of Illusions. and mm-hmm. in the, I think they came out at a similar time, maybe. Or yeah, you can see why in your head those would be similar titles. Yeah. But In the Mouth of Madness, I've always, I've always enjoyed. But uh, yeah, opening scene, which kind of bookends the film, is um, a mental institute... Uh, John Glover is the director there who seems like they couldn't get Christopher Lloyd in he's got mm-hmm. this extraordinary haircut and bow tie and Sam Neill who has really good uh, comic timing and things he's, he's doing a really good performance at the start of this, so much so playing this lunatic he almost seems to be channeling Malcolm McDowell for a lot of it he's got <laughs> the really wide eyes and just the way he delivers his lines, because I think he starts off trying to escape and um, smacks a few orderlies in the nuts doesn't yeah. he and then he's, it's him shouting through the glass in his door sorry guys about the balls it yeah. was a lucky miss or something <laughs> um, and it, as if to compound that David Warner turns up so you're, you're on you're good, for you're a treat. good, good <laughs> turf in fact everyone in this seems to be having a great time letting their hair down Definitely. with the possible exception of Charlton Heston <laughs> but yeah you say you've already seen this a few times yes. so, um, it was a, a revisit for me and but yeah, trying to view something critically is uh, you always try to do it a little bit different. Uh, they're to a penny nowadays, I suppose. These films that blend reality and, uh, and yeah. fiction, even within like books that you read, you know, that it, it became a big thing. I saw. I mean, everyone calls it postmodern, but I don't think that's really like a, a fair umbrella term for it. I mean. Wasn't Cervantes doing that with Don Quixote? Yeah, I think there's a scene in that, and I've got to stress I've never managed to read all of Don Quixote. But, um, <laughs> it's a good book. Very I think there's, funny. A, there's a scene in that when he goes into a um, goes into like a factory and sees a publishing press printing the stories he's just appeared in. It's mm. like the whole thing's referring back on itself. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm glad you said that because I generally don't like these kind of metafictional things where it's referring back on itself as fiction because it's it's usually someone will present it as if, ooh, this is an incredibly ingenious idea, isn't yeah. it? You're thinking, this again? And it's usually just really tedious. Um, the few times it works, it's like Dennis Potter did it all the time, and he really nailed it with the, the, the TV uh, series of Singing Detective. Mm-hmm. But he did it either side of that, and usually to no great effect, it was just a bit dull. Here, though, it does really work, because it is... Um, it is almost a bit like with The Thing, which is obviously really great. I've always felt with that, I might, might get some hate mail for this, um, it's good in spite of John Carpenter. Right. It's It kind of works accidentally. Um, and with this, again, it kind of put you off guard because some of you, so much of it did have classic John Carpenter stuff. This is classic on my terms. Yes, yes, yes. Where, like I said, there were lots of scenes which should have worked but didn't quite. I mean, one of them is the one I referred to in the, the introduction with the mummified cyclist. Mm-hmm. There's a great bit when um, Sam Neill and Julie Carmen um, are driving off and she sees a teenage boy on a bicycle and she can hear this um, frapping noise, which is he's got um, playing cards in the spokes of his bicycle. And a little while later, it's kind of like they've gone around in a circle, but the same cyclist is coming back, but with this big shock of white hair and is aged. But there's something about the way... The the way it's staged is just... The guy just... The position of his body is too stiff and awkward, and so rather than looking spooky, which it should, it's a really good idea, but it just looks a bit comical. (laughs) And the fact that then it's kind of screwed up because they keep showing that figure over and over again, Mm. it should have been just glimpsed, and that's something that really works in this. There are lots of scenes where things are just kind of 
glimpsed out of the corner of your eye. Yeah, yeah. They're not lingered on. And again, whether that's... I am going to give Carpenter credit for that. Right, OK. Um, it'll be the way he's filmed it and also the editing, so... Yeah, there's, there's some subtlety at play here, but I think also that does raise questions, I think, like budgetary questions, because I think there's... For a film like his earlier film, certainly the thing is what we'd refer back to as being a visceral experience. Isn't it? You see everything yeah. there. Um, this was very much more like withholding opportunities of gore and stuff, which I found quite interesting because only a few years ago he was on, uh, John Carpenter was on Mark Gatiss's uh, The History, History of Horror. Horror yeah. And he was like really bad mouthing Val Luton for <laughs> creating, you know, tension and right. not really having payoff. Mm. And I thought he did this quite a lot in mm. this film. If you look in certain points, you know, there's a there's a point where someone kills themselves with a shotgun, and you, you get a, a flapping hand coming down, mm. and I don't think there's any blood at all. You know, there's just mm. a sound effect. And it's, there's a build-up of tension to that and stuff. And I thought, well, this is kind of like what you've spoken out against um, in some ways. I think there's a big difference between Carpenter and Luton. Well, yeah, of course. But, I mean, there's... I don't know. I just find it a little bit like yeah. and also, slightly double standard. Yeah. <laughs> if, his, if his problem with Luton was that the whole film didn't have a payoff, then mm. I don't think that's true of this. And it, no, regardless no. of whether you think it's a good or a bad payoff, oh, it's, it's a great... It's, it's, yeah. it's, it's a good going hell for leather. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, amongst those things that half glimpse, because there are there's a fair bit of prosthetics and stuff. Um, but like I say, you only half glimpse them. It's almost a kind of a shame now that you got DVD because you can <laughs> you can pause things in a way that even with VHS you were probably going to have picture breakup with um, static bands and stuff. But the great bit, I think, one of my favourite bits in here is um, the actress is it Frances Bay from the David Lynch films? Yeah, yeah. who's this hotel receptionist? Um, Happy Gilmore's grandma. Yes. <laughs> um, but there's a scene where it's clear there's something under the counter with her when she's talking to Sam Neill and trying to sort of get rid of him. You can hear some grunts and she's looking down. <laughs> and I thought, knowing up John Carpenter's like, we were going to get a reveal of this big rubber monster. <laughs> what you see, which I won't reveal, is just like, what? <laughs> <laughs> and again, they don't linger on it. It's there just no. enough for you to then probably think back on it yeah. a while later and think, did I see Computed, that? Yeah, yeah. it's yeah. like really weird. <laughs> but we've kind of got away from the plot here. Because, um, yeah, it is that, that title in the mouth of madness sounds quite throwaway, but it is really about this guy's mental collapse, isn't it? That sounds pompous, but that's what no. a lot of horror is from it. It's not sort of just monsters appearing. It is about a guy questioning his own reality because, um, well, we've already explained in the introduction... A lot of the idea here is um, Sutter Kane, is it the name of the sort of Stephen the King analogue? Yeah. yeah. Uh, world's most successful novelist who's suddenly gone missing. But his, his books um, have quite an effect on his fans. A lot of them seem to go a bit round the twist as a result. I think early on we've got a guy with an axe who's. Uh, his publisher. Who yeah. turns out to be his publisher. Mm -hmm. He's attacking Sam Neill. Um, and yeah, throughout it, the idea is this guy's works, the actual prose, are actually um, affecting people's minds in a way that kind of reminded me a bit of Videodrome, except that yeah. the tones of the two films are different. Absolutely. Are you that familiar with H.P. Lovecraft? Um, I've read some of, I've got the Necronomicon yeah. uh, collection at home and I like dip in and out and mm. I read um, Michelle Welbeck's um, essay on mm. Lovecraft recently, well, like last year which I really enjoyed, but yeah, I'm by no stretch of the imagination or authority on him. Yeah. But there is there's something I was telling someone actually yesterday about how his quite a unique voice, you know, he he's kind of 
sowed the seeds of the horror genre, I guess, really. Well, modern, contemporary yeah. horror genre. Because um, I won't pretend I've read too much. I'm someone probably typical who was uh, uh, drawn to it because it had this reputation. Tried reading it when I was a bit younger and found the prose of it impenetrable. <laughs> but what I know of it, and I mean, this is secondhand, it is from things like, the, as, as a kid, I played the role-playing game Call of Cthulhu. Uh, recently, I've read all of the Alan Moore um, Lovecraft uh, stuff as Neonomica, yeah. which is uh, great fun. If you, uh, I know you've got that, haven't you? Mm. Um, but the idea in that was was of this. It's the idea that the actual words that are used to summon Cthulhu and all of the creatures from this mythos have a kind of physical, uh, an effect on changing physical reality. And yeah, I I think this was really really good. It worked really well with that. I mean, there's there's kind of um, there's a particularly really good CGI shot, I think. Not like technically great, but a really inventive use of it when um, Jürgen Prochnoff, who turns up with an extraordinary hairstyle. <laughs> oh, wow, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Thatched. He looked like Hinge and Bracket. Uh, <laughs> when he turns up and almost like rips himself to pieces, and it's not like oh, a yes. gruesome scene, but it just, it is something that by that point you're quite wondering what you're seeing. Mm -hmm. And like I say, a lot of it, a lot of the horror in this is just glimpsed and. Um, really brilliantly done yeah and I, I really think Sam Neill does an amazing job of carrying the whole film because for me he's the kind of linchpin for it because his his job as this insurance investigator is to deal with realities it's to get underneath the, the lies of what people say and reveal something that's like true and he finds it so difficult to accept what's going on around him you know this this madness that's that's going on and his denial of it all is it's, it's actually quite admirable in a way it's, it, there's a st stoicism about him but he's got that very like night like almost Humphrey Bogart private dick approach to it all I think in some ways especially early on as a character he's very much a, he's always got the cigarette and he's uh, he's very cool even in like a hot office when he's he's, he's got a client that guy under so duress like yeah pieces and he but his descent into the madness is great i mean it's along the lines of his role in possession i think in Zulovsky's um possession is it's not as uh, fraught as that but there's definitely he 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 can juggle between being normal and verging on cracking up he, he you know, he doesn't really do one or the other. He he manages to balance it quite well. Yeah, no, it's good because there is that setup of him being the guy who can see through insurance scams. So mm. he immediately thinks this is is being um, shanghaied into something, yeah. doesn't he? And even when absolutely amazing things are happening, he's assuming it's special effects. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. Um, however, with typical John Carpenter gusto, there's a great line of dialogue when. Um, Again, Julie Carmen's explaining how popular this uh, set of Kane's books are, and Sam Neill's never read them because I suppose the audience of the film need to know who he is. I said, "Oh yeah, you know this is incredibly popular," and he just comes out out of nowhere with this long, which I'll paraphrase. But it's like, "We fucked up the air, we fucked up the water, we fucked up each other. Let's finish the job by flushing our brains down the toilet." <laughs> and there's nothing else in the film to suggest he's got that level of kind of um, depth and perception to things. Yeah. It's just yeah that that. Just really dropped like a clunker in there. <laughs> but you should probably blame uh, Michael DeLuca, the, the writer for that. <laughs> um, Julie Carmen, then. How did you find her character? Styles. Yeah. I remember when I first watched this and I thought, what is this? Like, is she just a joke? And by now, this is like third or fourth time I've seen it. Yeah, she is kind of a joke. Like, she's just a weird cipher, I think. Yeah. Given what the film is, this probably won't be as funny if you've not seen the film. But I did look her up on uh, Wikipedia and it lists her as an actress, dancer, 
and a licensed psychotherapist. <laughs> now, given the last time we see her in the film, do you remember this scene when she's crawling out of the car? Uh, yes, 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 yes. <laughs> if you were in her office and you'd seen your analyst you'd doing that, that. <laughs> yeah. Maybe she's got a still on the wall. Well, hopefully, <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, we won't go into specifics of that, but it's very much like uh, a deleted scene from The Exorcist. Another scene I liked was... Is it The Carpenters? Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah, that's Pedro Slavuzak at the beginning, that's, isn't it? To calm down, the, calm down the lunatics. But I love the fact that John Carpenter uses The Carpenters. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, there is a recurring scene throughout it of um, Sam Neill going past an alleyway and seeing a cop beating a guy with his nightstick, mm. which kind of works, even though it shouldn't, because he uses a lot, that, that repetition, but also the he uses the old cliche of waking from a dream and then waking up again from it, uh, but yeah, it's pretty effective. It did, I thought it, I thought it worked really well, um, because I watched something else recently which did a similar thing, and it wasn't as effective as that, that, that really, like, yeah. I knew it was coming as well, yeah. I thought, oh, it's so <laughs> obvious, and it still got me, I was like, whoa! <laughs> And you know the reference to Hobbs End, which is the the town in this, and it's the name of one of the author's books. No, I don't know the reference. All right, this is um, that's the tube station from Quatermass in the Pit. And oh, I know right. Carpenter was a big fan of that, and wow. um, I think because he, he wrote the script for Prince of Darkness, but called himself Martin Quatermass. Okay. But I think they had worked together. He and Nigel Neal, who did Quatermass, but they had a falling out. Halloween Three. Yes, that would have been it. Yeah. yeah. So um, the witch. So this won the John Carpenter vote. Are there any others you'd recommend from this? Uh, have you seen all of the stuff? Like, you know, vampires and... I've seen vampires. I haven't seen Prince of Darkness. Mm. Um, yeah, Ghost Mars, Escape from LA, Escape from New York. <laughs> Village of the Damned. Village of the Damned I haven't seen. Or Elvis the movie. Oh, yes. Which I, I, I kind of wanted to, it to win so I could have an excuse to it. Because I don't like Elvis, really. I'm not a fan of his... Do you like Kurt Russell? I love Kurt Russell, though. <laughs> I want to see Kurt Russell in uh, Elvis uh, get up cheeseburger big quiff man Nick Cage must have been kicking himself <laughs> have you read it? no I never read Kane's work I haven't got the stomach for it poor don't distribute it Look, even if everything I've said is totally loony tunes I know this book will drive people crazy well, I hope so movie comes out next month. Okay, we've got a little bit of listener feedback, including this from Stephen Cannon. Hey, Stephen. Hi, Steve. Uh, thanks for getting in touch. Who, um, yeah, we thought we would be getting a little bit of this. Uh, you were quite scathing about Dead Zone. I do feel bad for you because you're usually so positive about everything. <laughs> yeah. But you picked the wrong film, didn't you? To get tired and King. To get tired <laughs> and emotional about. Yeah. Although, as we do this, you're on your fourth Guinness now. <laughs> Who knows what could be coming up in the Guinness is before like food. The, it's okay. <laughs> is this is what you say at your AA meeting. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, hi Stephen. Uh, just a couple of points on your review of The Dead Zone, since I'm old enough to remember when it was new and I've read the novel, albeit 25 years ago. You criticised Walken's character for being bland, which indeed he was. In the book, this was clearly made to be intentional, as the character's name is John Smith, and King reiterates that he was as ordinary as his name. I'm not sure that that is good storytelling on King's part, but in the film, compared to Stephen Lacker's Cameron Vale in Scanners, he seems pretty engaging. Um, you know Scanners. Yes, uh, I love Scanners. Yeah, but the main guy in it is uh, 
pretty wooden, isn't he? Yeah, he's, he is, but I, it's not a problem for me. He's not Christopher Walken, who I've seen in many other films, who has a persona and a lot going for him, and just doesn't really get any of that across in The Dead Zone. Walken against Patrick McGowan, though, that would have been something. Walken against Ironside. That's what I would <laughs> oh, <yeah>. say. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, Michael Ironside, not... Uh, the. Not, not Raymond Burr in his, yeah. Yeah. in his wheelchair. You complain that the coma sequence was contrived. The book is 400 plus pages, which allows the coma sequence to be handled with more care. In fact, the whole movie feels pretty squeezed plot-wise if you've read the novel, and a lot of the scenes were left out of the film. I think it probably would have worked better as a four-hour production. On second thoughts, I'm not sure I could have sat through four hours of that movie. <laughs> Okay, no, complete agreement there. Um, it was Cronenberg's first and maybe only mainstream Hollywood film. It played regular theatres in small towns like the one I grew up in, and non-horror, non-cult movie fans went to see it. King already had a following among the mainstream, so the movie was generally noticed, and its reception was also moderately positive, though probably better than Liv- Jonathan Livingston Siegel, <laughs> but I'm not old enough to remember that one. <laughs> You complained about Walken's performance, which I thought was interesting because Chicago Sun-Times critic Roger Ebert suggested that Walken should be nominated for an Academy Award for the role. There was some buzz about it at the time. Roger Ebert is a man of many opinions. <laughs> yeah, no, some I, I, I agree I, with, some I don't. Yeah. No. Have you heard he's, got, he's got Ebert, Ebert Fest on at the moment, hasn't he? Has he? Uh, yeah, he, he does a little year, uh, annual festival of not new films, but stuff he's seen in the last yeah. year, which he thinks has slipped through the... Slip through the net. Yeah, hey, that, that sounds familiar. Yeah, I, I, I don't think we can uh, blame him. <laughs> we can't accuse him of anything. Uh, the only thing that did bother me about this, and most movies based on Stephen King novels and the films based on them, that you didn't mention is that it didn't seem very grounded in reality. Two parts were particularly bothersome. One, when John Smith is sick, he goes to this sanatorium in the countryside, which is very, sp- which is a very spacious villa where he appears to be the only patient here. Among with, uh, along with Herbert Lom's doctor. I hope US tax dollars are not going on funding this project. Second, when Martin Sheen is shown as president, he's launching the nuclear missiles from what appears to be some kind of loft apartment in a room which just has a gaudy shagrug on the floor. I do not believe that nuclear missiles are far from such locations and the budgetary constraints of the movie were painfully clear in that scene. Yeah, um, mind I you, that was mention... a vision. That was a vision that Walken's having. So maybe, yeah. maybe his brain has been damaged. And can't, <laughs> can't quite picture the Oval Office or uh, Air Aircom. What was it? Defcon One. Defcon One. Yeah. But I did mention in the review that you know before we reviewed um, Dead Zone, I'd watched Cronenberg. Um, um, oh, is this his creation of a world? Kind yeah, of? you yeah. know about how a reality. Yeah. Is, it should be a, fil- a film should be in a certain reality, and that you should be soaked into that. So yeah, I mean, even you know, even when I used to read Stephen King's books, I, the, I don't think the fact that they're trying to be grounded in some kind of reality should be that. It doesn't have that bigger pull for me, to yeah. be honest. Well, I don't I, think I Stephen mean, was too serious with that last point. I think that was uh, no, no, yeah. that was like the big one of the biggest failings for the the film was for me is that it what, was the just, rug on his floor? <laughs> just the whole idea of being pulled into that reality mm. you know that 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 particular fiction it yeah. just it just doesn't work for me well Compared thanks thanks very much for getting in touch Stephen you're not the only one who's wasn't too pleased with well, I say our review it's Phil's review really I was, <laughs> I was kind of positive about it but oh uh, no I haven't got it here but I know Lyndon was um wasn't yeah, too he wasn't, wasn't too, too pleased with your uh, overly harsh, wasn't it? Yeah, although he was quite keen on the um, Panzer tank 
No, that was in the novel, wasn't it? He got the uh, yeah, he the, got the, the tank the details wrong. wrong. However, That's another opinion. Point. Yeah, um, our very good friend Michael Little, who um, hi, Michael, dropping us another email there. I'm glad that I wasn't the only one that who had issues with the dead. I'm reading this with a big smile. <laughs> Sorry. It will be interesting to hear what the other listeners have to say about it. Um, so you've heard. I mean, I did like the wintry setting too, and Walken's coat was cool, but it's still a sloppy mistone mess. Also, Walken is good in leading roles. He's stellar in the prophecy, truly, in brackets. And then there's always communion. Donald Camel's wild side, Brainstorm, the Ferrara movies, the Dogs of War, McBain, and that Canon movie tales, Puss in Boots <laughs> musical. I've not heard of that. No, it, um, it's maybe best not to look into it. Maybe just have that image in your mind. Okay. Those words can... It would be like in the mouth of madness. The very <laughs> words have uh, created something horrifying. I've actually got Wildside at home and Brainstorm unwatched. Oh, Mc, no. I, I watched recently. I was thinking of doing Brainstorm on the show, but... Um, oh, I've I got it on gonna have, tapes, well, I don't so. think we'll have time this, uh, nah. this time around. Um, seriously, he's pretty much great in everything he's in and easily transcends his recently acquired iconic celebrity cameo pop meme status. I just recently saw Walken in an early role, pulling off a strange botched heist with Sean Connery in Sidney Lumet's The Anderson Tapes, which was fantastic. Cool abstract electronics on the soundtrack. It also furthers my theory that 1971 was a home run year for movies. Fuck 39. What, fuck 82 as well. What about 34? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Death of Broadcasting. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and finally, and finally, on to the most pressing issue. Kindergarten Cop on his less good movie. What about Last Action Hero? I recently revisited it and it's super fantastic. Shane Black and David Arnott's script is really funny, smart, fun, and actually kind of touching. There's a fake spoof trailer with Arnold as Hamlet, a fun now nostalgic video store scene, movie references, and fun celebrity meta cameos and lookalikes. Ian McKellen as Death from Bergman as the Seventh Seal, Tom Noonan as a really scary villain killer, and plenty of good old magical movie experiences, fantasy action, fun. Everybody is really good and Arnold really shines. Charles Dance is especially great as the cold, calculating, sleek-suited, devilish main villain who has an interchangeable glass eye collection showcasing, dif showcasing different creepy icons. I only saw it in its Pan and Scan video TV version back in the day. But in reality, it needs to be seen in its original cinemascope widescreen ratio to fully appreciate McTiernan's over-the-top Hollywood stylish movie action direction, which simultaneously spoofs the heightened unreality of big-budget widescreen Hollywood action movies whilst remaining exciting and entertaining for the same reasons. Thanks, I'd, Michael. I'd, so again, the listeners want your ass. Yeah, I did want to say, though, I saw Last Action Hero at the cinema when it's, it came out. It's too out. late now. And I really disliked it because because of all those reasons. I guess as a like thirteen, fourteen year old, I just thought it was all a bit like it's trying to be too clever for its own good kind of thing. But I actually, <laughs> my wife doesn't know this, but I did buy it on Blu-ray the other day off Amazon. It was only six quid, so I'm waiting for it to come, um, and I'm really looking forward to because I read this earlier. So. I'm looking forward to watching it again, reappraising it. <laughs> I would rather watch Last Action Hero again than Kindergarten Cop. Kindergarten Cop's great fun. Even though my memories of uh, Last Action Hero, I, I saw it when it came out, I remember being not that impressed, other than Charles Dance, I thought he was really good in it. Mm. It's a great gag. He's got when, a smiley face. He's got one of his eye, eye yeah. things as a smiley face. But I think there's a great gag when he clicks his fingers and all the Dobermans stand in a pyramid. Do you remember <laughs> that? <laughs> no. Uh, there's, there's some good gags like that in it. And but, it's, but it's got that... 
quite annoying child in it who that's, that's, he has that bowl yeah. Yeah, haircut. That's a central problem. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah <so. laughs> but no, I remember when it came out, not being too impressed with it because I, I really liked Terminator 2 when it came out. Um, but my mate Nick really defended it, even in, in, you know, the more it got slagged off, the more he was digging his heels in <laughs> and just shaking his head and going, it's too clever for its audience. Any case, uh, Stephen and Michael, thanks very much for getting in touch. Yeah, thanks, guys. Yeah. Um, I promise I'm not going to review anything badly ever again. <laughs> well, let's actually, get on. You, want, you want it to so we can get let's, some more correspondence. Yeah, <laughs> take the heat off me. <laughs> well, you've just said that, so let's move on to our uh, final movie of the night. Rich knobs and privileged arseholes can afford to be bonkers. After a suddenly and definitely unexpected death befalls the current incumbent, a new Earl of Gurney is required, a position bequeathed to asylum inmate Peter tall much to his family's horror in 1972's adaptation of Peter Barnes' surreal black comedy, The Ruling Class. With the new Earl firmly believing himself divine, his message of love and understanding rests poorly with his relative sense of privilege and jingoism, though does little to phase Marxist butler Arthur Lowe. Now Jim sprang this film on me uh, when we last recorded, Mm -hmm. Um, said watch it cold. Yeah, I asked if you'd heard of a Peter O'Toole comedy called The Ruling Class and you went no. and yeah, I, d- I did advise you not to look it up on Wikipedia. This is a fact that won't happen with our readers now because we've had to kind of give them some background on it. But um, yeah, I spoke to you briefly on the phone yesterday and you said you were glad you'd watched it cold. So yeah, uh, yeah. what did you make of this? I loved it. I thought it was fantastic. Um, extremely British in its humour. I'd only recently watched or rewatched um, The Bed Sitting Room. Mm-hmm where we have the wonderful Arthur Lowe who's also in this who most people will probably know from Dad's Army as Captain Mannering yeah but aside from Dad's Army Dad's a very cosy sitcom for our non-British yeah, listeners very, but very well loved and the, I've seen recently two films very like surreal films with this guy who I've only known from my childhood as a, a very uptight um He's a little Napoleon, isn't he? Yeah, yeah, basically. Yeah, well, I mean, the whole... I'm sort of getting away from it here. The film itself is fantastic. It's it's satire in the in the best sense of the word. Um, it's quite long. It's two and a half hours long, which I thought... When I initially like started watching it, I was like, oh, my God, two and a half hours of this. But I have to admit, it, it was really well done. It's not like The Avengers, where there was moments where I was like, oh... This is do, we really need this? do we really need this bit here? We could have done without that. Because uh, Peter Medak, or Medak, I don't know, he's a Hungarian director who went on to do many great, well, many famous films out there. <laughs> <laughs> um, Spando Bally are the craze. <laughs> and also, did Peter Barnes actually do the screen screen? Yeah, as well. Yeah, um, they spread it out perfectly. They spread it out like. Um, a tablecloth over a dead body. <laughs> yeah, it is marvelous because you have these incredibly ludicrous musical interludes, um, sing songs that come out of nowhere. Even though you've seen one about 25 30 minutes before, it still jolts you out of it, and it's, it's a really good way of um, drawing you back into the film. For a film that's ab- absolutely bizarre, you know, Peter O'Toole is is sort of given free reign to be barmy here. It's O'Toole, his O'Toole stuff. Yeah, say. I mean, it's like I, I kind of wonder how much he's 
actually acting. I think he might have just been off his rocker. Well, this is, <laughs> I really can't imagine anyone but him playing this because no. it's so perfect. And um, there were several reasons I picked this. I mean, one was uh, on a Christmas special, we got a few of our um, regular contributors to suggest films. One was Phil McGee, um, who came up with my favourite year, which I remember I wasn't too impressed with, but I really loved, we both loved O'Toole. Yeah. So I was keen to see something else with him, and this seemed like he's just incredible in this. I mean, um, playing this very theatrical nutcase, um, his dialogue is fantastic <laughs> in it. It's kind of chops up biblical allusions, references to high literature, and then pop culture. They're all <laughs> throwing together and all sort of punctuate each, um, like deflate each other at the end. Which um, I'm going to say kind of reminds me of John Lennon lyrics a bit. It's kind of a weird mashup of them all. The fact okay. that he's meant to be. Jesus or God in it, so he's got this incredibly long hair and beard, <laughs> but wears this white suit with a tie and tennis <laughs> shoes, and it's very painfully thin. Yeah, um, but so energetic. And I think reading around some other reviews, somewhat, um, even though I don't think it was very popular when it came out, everyone loved O'Toole and was saying things like, you know, "Anyone can play a, a lunatic, but it's not many people can do it really convincingly." Yeah. <laughs> and he's he's such a powerhouse in this. Oh, it's great, yeah. but everyone's great in it. No one's bad in this. And in fact, it's it's hard then to come up with who's like next on the list. And it would be Arthur Lowe, who's. Like oh, say, he. He it's so weird, so yeah, to go from him as Captain Mannering. I mean, he did seem to do quite a few of these, like, say, a bed-sitting room. Um, Peter Cook uh, satire, The Rise and Rise of Michael mm -hmm. Rimmer, he's really good in, and and Lindsay Anderson's films. Um, you've not seen Oh, Lucky Man yet? No, no, I haven't. It's worth it. He's got three roles, I think, in that, and one of them is jaw-dropping. <laughs> but it is, it still is shocking to go and see Captain Mannering doing all these... Yeah. <laughs> Quite see, I'm not gonna say seedy, but just adult kind of roles because mm. he's quite foul mouthed in this, isn't he? And, yes, yeah. Um, but yeah, another reason I picked it was I was watching it, really enjoying it, and it reminded me, like I say, it, the, the, the Lindsay Anderson thing was clear through it, I yeah, thought. Yeah. Um, but also, it reminded me an awful lot of the Ninth Configuration. Yes, yeah, yeah. Yeah, which we reviewed back on show one, and I know it's been quite popular with uh, listeners, a lot mm -hmm. of people have checked that out, so um. I mean, I'd certainly recommend this if you like that. There's a lot of similarities, not just because the central character is this, like I say, theatrical nutcase, but also it's something that sort of two-thirds of it is quite a knockabout comedy, and then it gets a lot more serious in the final kind of third. A that lot more really surprised me, yeah. yeah. Um, there's a massive... It's not actually a tonal shift, really, because there is still that sense of the absurd about it, and um, the humour is still there, whereas... Whereas the ninth configuration is very much it's throughout, it's yeah, it's it's always there. With this, you know, this. But I I I found the bed sitting room a bit like that. There's these like up and down. I think if you look at the history of sort of like British cinema, certainly in comedy, there's always that. There's a quite a dark undertone that mm. uh, accompany these um, kind of uh, films or. I mean, even stuff like Monty Python, even. Yeah, it had a lot of something Python sinister, it, uh, yes. like, underneath. Well, yeah, I think it was possibly... I mean, because, yeah, but Bed Sitting Room and, and this are both uh, based on stage plays. Mm. Um, it's almost like something was happening. Oh, was the Angry Young Men thing, but I think British <laughs> yeah. theatre was suddenly shifting, I think, because they used to have to submit everything to be for the censor, didn't they? And yeah. There was a lot of... Um, yeah, obviously the big shift in censorship in the 60s and I think once people had the freedom to do this stuff they really went hell for yeah, it, yeah. didn't they but yeah I suppose it had probably been well as um, as O'Toole always says you know he, he has this little mantra about galvanised pressure cooker 
Vroom. So, yes. <laughs> so he wants to, if anyone's saying anything negative, he puts it in this um, metaphorical galvanised pressure yeah. cooker. I guess that must have been the case for a lot of writers and mm. creative people at that time. Um, yeah, it's interesting that you said Night Configuration because I, I thought there was like quite a lot of similarities Although this was a lot better than Sir Henry at Rawlinson End, yeah, again, which is very obvious. It was almost like everything that was bad about Sir Henry yeah. at Rawlinson End. <laughs> Viv Stanshaw's comedy review <clears throat> way back on about show eight or something. Mm. But um, everything that fell flat about this was brilliantly done here. You know, um, it wasn't just out and out surreal. That's thing. There was that. Yeah. There was bite to it. There was um, some kind of menace, yeah. uh, which was kind of lacking in Stanshaw's yeah. stuff. It, yes. He went a bit to the other way. I think. Yeah, that's right. So Henry was just people acting strange for the sake of it here. A lot of what's great about it is the tension of O'Toole's character having this position of power and his family around him really wanting to hold on to things being um, traditional and established and having to try and find a way around it, which is um, the meat <laughs> of the plot. Yeah. Uh, they bring in Carolyn Seymour, who people might remember from um, the 70s TV science fiction show The Survivors. Yeah, I'd never seen her before. Yeah. All oh, right. Oh, she's uh, you, one you, beautiful you've lady. got to see it. You're rubbing your hands <laughs> yes, together sorry. now. Yeah. <laughs> no, you do get to see an awful lot of her in this, which is odd because I think the other another film she's in is Steptoe and Son or Steptoe and Son Rides oh, right, again. Yeah. I think again she's a stripper in that because uh, <laughs> here she's um, a naughty lady. I think is it. But um, yeah, she's she's brought in to marry O'Toole's character and hopefully provide an uh, an heir who and then they can sort of get things sorted legally with him being uh, unfit for purpose. <laughs> Yeah, Carolyn Seymour is fantastic in it. Graham Crowden crops up in it as well. He's um, great. Brief, brief, but uh, he yeah. makes uh, he he stamps his mark on it, doesn't he? <laughs> yes. And uh, Coral Brown, who even though she's about sixty here, is incredibly foxy. I thought she reminded me of Prunella Scales a bit. Oh, I thought she's a lot better. <laughs> yeah, Prunella Scales more rounded, I guess. But <laughs> yeah, um, and also. Uh, Alistair Sim oh yeah yeah he's throughout it's kind of strange to see him in colour really I'm yeah, so used to playing yeah. these characters in uh, like old St Trinian's films and but things. he delivers his lines so like how yeah. you'd expect him to you know very he's quivering doddery old bishop who's shocked by everything but he's always sort of like two paragraphs behind everyone else which uh, it was great you know it's it, it, that's what's good as well it's almost being subversive using an actor of that uh, stature mm. in that role Within the greater story, of yeah, the, you know, the which again feels like Lindsay Anderson, with yeah, yeah, all these big names, you know, with, with who, who for a good reason bring a lot of luggage with them, but mm -hmm. it's kind of played against them. Uh, also, James Villiers, who's this kind of he's pretty much like um, the character in uh, Death at Broadcasting House, isn't he? He's an upper class twit, um, but um, yeah, do you recognize him from Running Out of Luck? He was Jerry Hall's. He's the sort of um, yes. politician she goes yes, off with. Yes, a lot older. God. Oh, yeah, yeah, that 20 year gap. Yeah, but, yeah. Um, yeah. But a real standout performance in this is Nigel Green. And this is kind of, this is really tangentially how I found the film. Ah. Uh, I'd never heard of it, which I think's criminal. This oh, should be absolutely. really well known. It's like it not well be, known at all. BFI should be releasing this. Yeah. Um, Grant Morrison did the Batman comic Arkham Asylum. <laughs> okay. This is really dead. Yeah. <laughs> Which, if people don't know, it was pretty much brilliant, brilliant artwork by Dave McKean, McKean. But the setup was just Batman goes to the place where all his enemies are locked up and takes them on one at a time. I remember reading it as a teenager and I knew all of the villains in it except for this one bizarre one called Maxi Zeus, 
who looking around was a kind of very low-rung Batman villain from the 70s who thought he was Zeus and had some mythology-based mischief that he got up to. In Arkham Asylum is this guy who's had so much ECT, he's kind of talking in this very fancy prose with lots of um, electricity and lightning-based kind of illusions. Um, I thought I'd give this another go, because like I said, I love the art, but I thought the story was nothing at all. And in the library they had the anniversary edition, which had Grant Morrison's script, and his directions to Dave McKean, the artist, were all about this film, The Ruling Class. Said, oh, you got to watch it. This is a great bit where Nigel Green turns up this Presbyterian Old Testament God who thinks he's the ACD Messiah and sticks <laughs> his fingers into plugs and stuff. I was thinking, what is this film? <laughs> and I looked it up, and yeah, I thought I've got to watch this. <laughs> it's so That's fantastic. Uh, so yeah, that character was completely lifted from. See, uh, Grant Morrison's done something positive well, for you. Well, the weird thing, <laughs> the weird thing with that is because one of the things Grant Morrison's most famous for is the Invisibles, which I've never particularly got on with. It's meant to be very countercultural and. Again, we were always talking about metatextual things. <laughs> but anyway, it always struck me as uh, sapphire and steel in bondage gear. <laughs> I know oh, you, you like it, but I, really what, like I have it. tried it a few times trying to get about halfway in. And this, the whole feeling of this seemed like something he has put into the, the Invisibles. I remember there was a lot of that thing about how corrupt the aristocracy was. Because yeah. you always yeah. had the huntsman and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. That's fantastic. That's amazing. I'm so <laughs> yes. glad that, that it's, it's come out of there. But he's such a character. Well, he ruins is... that scene. <laughs> <laughs> he kind of outdoes O'Toole because he's, he's trying to play that's, down O'Toole. That's kind of the yeah, point of the it, point, though, because yeah. O'Toole's playing this sort of um, god of love, and he's much more the Old Testament one who's absolutely full of sound and fury. And I don't have anything to back this up, but he did look quite badly dubbed throughout it. He and was I'm dubbed not... by Graham Crowson. Have you found that out? Because I thought yeah. it was. Yeah, no, he was. All oh, right, Because he committed suicide. Just yeah, after. I'm glad you found it because I, yeah. I thought that really sounds like Graham Crowden in Oh Lucky Man because um, what I've seen Nigel Green in a few other things he used to play Nayland Smith in the Fu Manchu Hammer right. films and uh, what is that? oh Ipcris File as well a few other th- British actors and like you say he died of a sleeping tablets overdose mm. um, yeah, which was no, his last was, film yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's an amazing scene um, but I, I'm surprised you said it two and a half hours you felt it, it kind of kept itself together because it did feel alright I've seen it twice now so <laughs> Jarring yeah. with me a bit more, but um, usually when um, you get a, a stage play that's adapted to the screen, there's a complaint that it's too stage bound. Mm-hmm. Um, this didn't feel like this, but the problem I had was it felt exactly like a play when the, it has like an hour and a half, then comes to a halt, which was obviously the end of the first act. Then you've got the second half, mm. and I think usually in a well in a play you'd have an intermission and time to recharge your batteries a bit, but this it just feels a bit like after all that build up, and that is the big. It's not a spoiler, but that is the big scene with this face-off between O'Toole as, you know, the loving god and Nigel Green as this insane, electrically charged character. Um, after that, it's just you're exhausted. Even though it goes on to insane stuff after that, like yeah. the fox hunt with the pissing fox. Yes, yeah. it's, it's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> <yeah. laughs> but I no, I actually like that. I like the fact that it does bring you up. It, it builds up this crescendo, and then wait. Well, definitely doesn't peter out i mean it just becomes very brings a sort of quite a, a down downbeat feel to it all and, which i thought was really necessary because mm. again that's another thing that something didn't that didn't happen with henry rawlinson was it was just this sort of like plateau of surreal uh, well you know comedy uh, whereas this, you know, there was a, there's a meaning and a message behind it. I mean, there is like a lot of finger pointing, but 
it's done with like big oversized fingers. Yes. <laughs> oh yeah, there's no subtlety here. Yeah, and then and then it really does go into a very very dark place. Um, which I, just, I don't know for me, maybe because I was watching it absolutely cold. I was just like, whoa, what? what? I yes. was intrigued by like, how, how are they going to wrap this up? Where's it going to go? How do they go from here? And yeah, well, but it, it goes in that particular direction, and yeah, it it, it managed to uh, hold my attention absolutely good yeah and it was brilliantly directed i thought um no great direction including there's this weird scene at the opening i mean there's a there's a there's a great bit at the opening with this um harry andrews is the original earl um giving his toast um but the titles are very perfunctory it's kind Mm. of unusual for a film of that era but it really reminded me of um the last episode of the prisoner when it just has these shots going around london and editing really quick yeah it's like a weird montage on a journey um and throughout it, the camera does really interesting things. It There's does, a great yeah. scene when O'Toole's saying he's going to perform a miracle and raise a table, and the camera's—you're not sure if it's the table it's or just, just the camera's view that's moving. You kind of wanted to like, yeah, peer over the into yeah, the screen yeah. or something because you had other people's eyes doing different things, and then when it moved away, uh, no, it didn't move. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> but you don't hear from the yeah. yeah. It was very, very, very well done. And yeah, the scene I very briefly mentioned which is the pissing fox, which is just like <laughs> a surreal. It's, great, it's all like. going back to the John Carpenter. It's almost like a subliminal little thing. When mm. it's, the, it's kind of like the Robin at the end of Blue Velvet. It's really bogus fox just yes, appears yeah. during a hunt and <laughs> urinates up a tree trunk. Um, and then the end, which we won't discuss, but it's a bizarre end scene, isn't it? Very, um, very odd. Which a lot of people have compared to like Hammer and Amicus horror kind of anthology. Yeah, I can imagine uh, like Vault of Horror. Kind yes, of but yeah. <laughs> uh, no, I'm I'm glad you enjoyed this. I mean, like, like, I mean, watching it a second time, I enjoyed it probably even more. But um, no, I mean, the, the main thing is, yeah, I really can't believe this isn't well known. No, it's such a shame. Right? Yeah, I just think this is right for something like the BFI, though. I think. Well, yeah, the, I think you know, the the um, there's the Criterion disc edition yes there is yeah, yeah which has an O'Toole commentary on it um, but yeah no, I'd, I'd really recommend checking this out if you like black comedies and good films basically yeah and I, it's one of those that would appeal to a lot of people I think in some ways or like cinephiles anyway because it has that it retains that very Englishness you know the, the whole story is centred on like um, the uh, disparate classes and the class system but also it's it's a massive kick to the balls yeah. at the same time. No, that is that is one last thing I wanted to say. Um, I think with a film like this, there was a danger when I was first watching it that the idea was going to be the the establishment are all set in their ways. Then this it, we're used to this in cinema. A lunatic is usually there to kind of say who's the real lunatic. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And the fact that he's coming with this message of love and acceptance and you know for sharing and stuff, which they all dismiss him as a bullshit and stuff. <laughs> yeah, you, know? yes, yeah. um, you thought, oh, is it going to go this way, isn't it? But without giving it away, it goes off in such a different direction <laughs> later on. Nah, yeah. If if it, like I say, resemblance to Ninth Configuration, but whereas that got quite philosophical and ponderous, this just gets absolutely savage. I'm the high voltage messiah. The who? The electric Christ. The ACDC God. Okay, that wraps it up for show 35. You're never going to hate another film again. <laughs> no, no, I promise. Okay. Scouts on a Cubs on a. Although you, you were even thinking of coming to watch The Avengers a second time. Yeah, I might do. Yeah, I'll see how it goes. I'm tempted. If I can bring this, that would be good. Oh, yes, your wife likes comic books. She likes superheroes. Yeah. She likes men in lycra. No, they're not even like. It's always that like four leather stuff, isn't it, that they wear nowadays? 
I've not been hanging the, around those kind of places. You can see the, I was going to say, paunches, but pouches. <laughs> this is kangaroo man. Where am I going? The marsupial. Yeah. <laughs> oh, thanks very much for listening. Thanks for everyone who voted on Polanski and Steve and Michael for feedback. Get your votes in for Beat Takeshi. Takeshi Kitano. Yeah. Beat Takeshi is his acting alias. Takeshi Kitano's is. I've got to say, this is a bit of a new world for me. (laughs) So, yeah. Nice to be here. Yeah, and if you want to get those votes in, drop us a line either on Twitter, as at Midnight Video, or Facebook. Do a search for us there. And our email, which is midnightvideo at hotmail.co.uk. And then, of course, there's our website, which is midnight video.com, where bit of supplemental material going up and I'm sure the stuff for uh, ruling class is going to be particularly good <laughs> I'm actually looking forward to doing that yeah, yeah. a gorilla in a top hat <laughs> for instance um, something we should mention before we go is we're going to be having another drink cup <laughs> imminently because this will be going out I'm doing it now weekend of preparation <laughs> you're already there this will be going out the weekend of like the 11th or something but yeah, it'll be May the 26th at the Blue Posts in London. Saturday from 2pm. Yeah, which is East Castle Street, back of back of Charlotte Street. Some people have been before. Yeah, but yeah, th- that could be our last, last midnight video drinks because you're yeah, moving be, on up. Yeah, I'll be moving to France in July, beginning of July. So the time between now and then is going to be pretty uh, packed full of mm-hmm. other social events or, uh, well, me trying to find a job and... Pack, pack up the flat and whatnot, and order um, more stuff. Yeah. <laughs> oh god, yeah. I just ordered like four books the other day. I thought, what am I doing? <laughs> oh wait, yeah. Now I get free postage. That's why I'm doing it. So yeah, it'll be great if we can see some of you guys there. It'll and um, yeah, what will happen when you move to France? It's all up in the air. We'll see. Hopefully, yeah. we can sort well, something out. We've got some plans. There's the means. <laughs> And you've still got another four cans of Guinness left. Yay! (laughs) Let's see. Okay, thanks very much. See you all next time. Bye. Disconnect them bones then. Dry bones, disconnect them bones then. Dry bones, disconnect them bones then. Dry bones, now hear the word of the Lord. Well, your head bone's connected to your neck bone. Your neck bone's connected to your shoulder bone. Your shoulder bone's connected to your backbone. Your backbone's connected to your hip bone. Your hip bone's connected to your thigh bone. Now hear the word of the Lord. I say it? Can I say it for our listeners? Can I think you can say it for you. Yeah, um, I call um, the Black Widow, as excellently portrayed by Scarlett Johansson, uh, Mewling Quim.